This is the first episode of the KGS podcast, an offshoot of the Stories of KGS program by the Daily Grammarian. Our first episode will be recorded with Ms. Onessa Imtisal Abbasi, the head of department of the literature department and one of our most beloved teachers. Thank you so much for for letting giving us this time today, Ms. Thank you, Musa, for saying that I did not know that I am so beloved. I'm really <laughs> blessed. I am blessed, honestly. Um, so yes, go ahead. Uh, how do you like the idea of having a podcast like this in school? I think it's a really great idea, and I always really do believe that uh, people have stories in them, and those stories have to be told. Um, of course, yes. and uh, you know sometimes uh, older stories stories that have happened and retelling of that really really you know there's there's great opportunity in there yeah 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 which is why we're doing this so we'll have a few questions which will sort of give us um some some direction towards the conversation but generally this should just be an open conversation that we can share with other people so the first question was something that I've been asked a lot and I'm sure many of the people who will be listening to the podcast will have asked at some point in their life as well. And that's a very fundamental question that comes up a lot in school. And that is why do we even study literature in the first place? Like what's the point of all this? Okay, that is interestingly a question that has been asked uh you know from the other side of the table a lot. People who say why do you teach literature? then there are parents who sat across me like you are sitting across me today and asking me what have you done to my child what magic have you done that he wants to study literature which is such a non lucrative degree right so this is a really this is a question which you know which makes me feel rather defensive about my subject because you know when you ask me why do we need to study literature the first thing that comes to mind is that we need to breathe mm-hmm. and the more modern our life becomes the more the more painful it becomes and when there is so much chaos and disorder in our lives for example i mean there is so much injustice in our world musa where children are being abused and where women are being raped yeah. when there is exploitation where there is gross capitalistic greed yes, yes, yes. all of that what saves you it's literature. poetry yeah. it's poetry it's literature it is a story which has a neat clean satisfying ending when there is no order in the universe literature creates order in the universe and we need literature because we have to be better people you know that is the difference between a quantitative discipline and a qualitative discipline you want to be a quality individual how can you not read to kill a mocking bird you want to be a qualitative individual how can you not read hamlet so these things are really important you you we need to study literature because we need to breathe we need to bleed not for us only but for other people and it was shelly the second generation romantic who said that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world mm. poets lay down the law you know you have to stop me because this is i can go on yeah yeah i understand <laughs> miss so there's a lot of interesting stuff that you brought up one of them was um capitalism another one was that, that we're living in a more and more modern world so do you think that the emphasis that we're placing on getting a job out of school is sort of ruining the the whole 
point of education, right? So someone might be sitting with me in class and they'd ask, how is this topic that we're doing today going to help me get a job five or 10 years down the line? So do you think that's a fundamental issue in education? And if so, how does that interact with literature and how can we get beyond it? Actually, I disagree with that because you see, uh, there are so many factors you have to consider. I'm not, okay, so I don't, I'm not just a literature teacher. I am also a college counselor. So, you know, in many ways, if you think about it, that that's a, there is a dichotomy there because as a college counselor, I am preparing the students to find a, to find a suitable course which is going to give them return from the money that their parents have spent on their education, which is fair. The difference and the goals of education, education has two goals, the short term goal, you know, to create an individual who can find his or her, their um, influential place in the society. That's the yes, short-term goal. And the long-term goal is to create an empathic international citizen of the world, a human being who is going to make a difference. Do you think modern education is still doing that no. as a goal? No, it isn't. It isn't. There is... There is a there are lots of problems with modern education and you know once again it's not just education education is a microcosm of our society society what i was you in our society desi societies at this point sitting in the most privileged the mo, the most the elitist school one of the two elitist schools in pakistan i still have parents who tell me that he he can either be uh, an engineer or a doctor there are no That's other sad. careers there are no other careers so it's society which shapes education yeah and society which shapes choices we buckle down don't we we do we do we buckle down i have had heartbreaks where my counselee would want to be a fashion designer but he went to an MBBS yeah but, you know so uh, where does that the, the passion or the, the skills to create great art mm-hmm. where does that even come from right so you could talk about exposure and information and empowerment but what is that since you've studied so much literature and so much art what makes someone like Hemingway into Hemingway where does that come from Hemingway makes Hemingway into Hemingway uh you know, there are so many theories and so many branches of knowledge which have actually studied creativity, yeah. okay? So the Greeks believe that there is such a thing as a genius. Mm. It's not the way we use genius, the way we use yeah, it yeah, now, yeah. which is erroneous, right? But genius is someone that a poet has. So there are two things. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know whether I'm qualified to give you a definite answer to this because there really no, but there's no isn't. definite answer We're yeah. just talking. I think it's I think part of it is instinct you have to have it in you you know you have to have a mad bone in your body mm. to be the artist to be the writer to be the pain, painter but you also have to have a robustness of discipline and an idiot with a plan will any day beat a genius without a plan. Mm, of course. You have to follow through. And remember when we were talking about that uh, 
whether we whether you i mean high school students studying a level literature whether do you even need to submit assignments Take notes, yeah. so you know that's not the, there are too many issues in it firstly that you have a moral obligation to me yes when you walk into my yeah, class yeah, yeah. like i have a moral ob- obligation to you you have one to me as well but on the other hand this is robust training for writing hmm. you know use these true years to to sharpen your pens so i and that's what hemingway did you know uh, uh, mm, i was reading his biography i think by his daughter granddaughter where he said that you know when uh, grandpa granddaughter when grandpa used to write so he his he would just write on a typewriter and then he would just read crumple and throw away. oh wow yeah. The editing is the most editing yeah. half of creative writing is editing yeah although hemingway said that you should write drunk and edit yes. so yes yes <laughs> absolutely yeah 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 uh, he uh, he um, some of the some writers are so articulate and uh, yeah hemingway's Miss do you think um experience has something to do with it like going out and having your heart broken or going to war or you know these sort of romantic things that we learn about the great poets and the great artists is that or do they just romanticize I their lives after I think there is a lot of romance in it I mean obviously look at Lord Byron yeah. uh the romanticists believe in it yeah. this theory that you're talking about that you have to have a you have to have an experience of extreme suffering, extreme suffering that yeah. shatters you only then true art can come that is what russians believe hmm. right for an artist to create great art he has to be taken through suffering so that's it but let me tell you there are writers like emily dickinson who start writing in 1800s america at the age of 15 creating phenomenal work but not being able to publish because the publishing houses are owned by men and that emily dickinson has had zero experience of life because the older she grows she is confining herself to her room to a certain to to an extent that for the last 10 years of her life she doesn't leave her bedroom mm. she only wears black and she dies at the age of 50 so 15 to 50 she has written about 2 2000 poems and now we are discovering them to be great art I don't you see experience is both thing it's both the things you uh, know it's experience but it is also observation observation a poet is that catalyst it's a poet is that chemical which is added to experience and to observation it may not be his own experience that's why creative uh, that's what creativity is right make creating an experience in your mind you hear something great plays are written just because a playwright has heard a story and that has moved him mm. and that little that little nugget of a story about someone becomes like a 200 page play mm. you know yeah. shakespeare hardly experienced any of the things that he um that he writes about he didn't he he stole liberally none of his yeah, writing yeah, yeah. is original but look what he's done with it i suppose that's also what the po- the point of art and movies and literature is right you're experiencing someone else's experience yes. and that creates some creativity in your mind so, right that's why we have speakers and narrators yeah create uh, um, i mean quasi personas yeah poets create quasi personas right? 
also miss uh, so you mentioned capitalism uh, the way women are treated you talk about our society again and again so are you an ideological person like do you have any firm ideologies that you'd stick to i don't know feminism or some religious identity or something i don't know marxism you know i'm so wary of labels so i don't know if i'm an ideologue i don't would i don't know if i'm a feminist what i can tell you is that i'm a helper and an enabler if there is one one philosophy that truly truly resonates with me is that of enabling and helping i will never say no to anyone for mm. any kind of that's no good but uh, so uh, uh, lots of people feminism is all the rage these days i suppose it's been for a while and lots of people ask me to ask you about it so uh how do you see feminism these days the way that i think fourth wave feminism in my generation is expressing itself how do you see that okay see uh i am on a i am on various think tanks okay uh, women related think tanks um i'm also really interested in uh women's education and uh, yes if if you are asking me whether i believe in women's rights i absolutely do because who wouldn't yes uh, sir it was i think the first person the first man who actually stood up and said to the world it was i once again i think 1800s uh george bernard shaw the mm. irish playwright he said i am a feminist and that really changed the literary world do you know what was the the impact of that one sentence what mm. was it about 100 novels which were stuck in publishing houses they got printed i see and then there is chimamanda ngozi adichie our the contemporary african writer uh, if you haven't read anything by her you must she she says everyone should be a feminist there is really no choice everyone should be mm. you see once again since my philosophy is helping and enabling women are the most marginalized people they really are every day in their lives and um, their suffering is not visible um because with the new gender identities there is so much focus on uh the new genders and women because they will suck it up and they will take it yeah day after day because of the sake of a relationship you know they are they are regular people and i notice mm. that regular regularity is something which is so uncool now yeah yeah, yeah right exactly. if you say this that you 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 have been in a marriage for 27 years and you are still in love with your husband and you're happily married that that's not cool is not cool yeah okay so you're talking about new gender identities and uh, as opposed to just femininity so i remember when i started studying literature in i think 9th grade when we were doing macbeth and we used to uh sort of make comparisons between lady macbeth and macbeth so femininity and masculinity were two things that would come up and in my mind because you know i had been reading the sort of fourth wave and feminism and being exposed oh, to like sociology no i don't okay but uh so i had this idea that gender is just a social construct that 
it, I come up with it myself, right? And then we're told that masculinity is this firm thing. These these things are masculinity, and these these things are femininity. And that comes up again and again in literature. Almost every story we do has some element of gender in that. So can you just, as someone who genuinely wants to learn, like what is gender, especially in the context of literature? How are we? I understand it's a very broad question, but. Mm, you know what? Many people will tell you that you shouldn't ask a 50-year-old person this question. I belong to another world, right? And people my age, uh, they have issues settling in to the new way we are looking at gender. We were, I was born in a very black and white world mm. where it, you were either a woman or a man and if there was anything in between, it was to be shunned and hidden. Right? Yeah. So probably people will say that, but uh, because I because I'm a tolerant person, as any person should be, um, I think what you said is right. The difference is that today, in today's world, gender is a is a, not just a social construct. It is not just biological construct. It is a matter of personal choice. That's what gender is. But if you ask me that, how does it, uh, sorry, I lost your question. How does it show up in literature or why does it show up in literature? Yeah, like uh, a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Mm-hmm. And they're, one is masculine, one is feminine. But these, these are two different things, right? To be a man and to be masculine, and to be a woman and to be feminine. I want to talk to you about these two concepts, femininity Musa, and masculinity. But Musa, that's what we are told, isn't it? We are conditioned to look at masculinity in a certain way and we are supposed to look at femininity in a certain way all the codes of chivalry the man must pull out the chair for the woman and hold the door and all these things right so these are uh, these are things we are conditioned to believe that this is what masculinity is but it may not be masculinity and the more you read actually you will realize that literature is exactly the safe space where you see that one may morph into another Another, a woman's suffering may not just represent a represent a woman's suffering it may represent the uh, a man's suffering and oh my god i'm just reminded of that brilliant magnum opus by arthur miller death of a salesman what could be more poignant suffering of a 70 year old man okay it is it is absolutely a play to read Mm, of course so masculine you know masculinity and femininity in literary themes is some are are constructs that often morph Hmm. into each other Uh, we just uh, we studied Emily Dickinson who seems to be equally in equal measure, repulsed and fascinated by masculinity. In one poem, she wants to take on that masculine persona. In the other one, she is raging against it. So I think you should really, I mean, you are the best person to understand that masculinity and femininity are so, they are so fluid now. Yeah, yeah, they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So you talk about reading. Uh, as a literature teacher, obviously, your job is, I assume a lot of your job is just reading, right? And you want your students My to... My passion. Yeah, if of course. This is, if this was a job, I wouldn't be doing this. You'd be reading. No, if, 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 if this was a job to me, Musa, you wouldn't oh, be sitting yeah, across of course, me. Of course. 
yeah but do you think people like in, people in my generation in my grade or younger than me are just not reading anymore and if they are are they not reading what we could call like good fiction or good literature or literature even in general okay so let's just call a spade a spade yes. reading is a dying form okay reading is honestly dying and we can look at the reasons i mean it has been replaced by so many other things that yeah. we are doing sitting down right and you know i really do believe in progress uh, although i'm old school but i do believe that progress happens so i'm not against technology or anything but i and and you know some things will fall by the wayside of course when the electric train will be invented the steam engine has to give way yeah, yeah. it's just as simple as that right of course and where industrialization will create more jobs it will also make some human beings redundant yes. right so you know that is something that no one we, i cannot fight i can just feel sad about it that there is still there is so much power in reading there is so much intimacy i mean i just find i've always found it fascinating that a writer has written something and you open the book and there is this intimacy that yeah, the writer is speaking to you it's not a collaborative art form like fi- like film is you know mm. miss but if people are not reading people i assume obviously will not be writing if they don't mm-hmm. have an audience and they're not reading in the first place mm-hmm. so what is going to happen to literature in the future you know literature is safe it will not it will not die look at the look uh, okay let's look at the microcosm so at our school we teach compulsory literature and then there are people who choose to study literature yeah, yeah. right there will always be people who will choose to study literature and literature is a niche niche not just niche a level discipline but it is a niche trade you will not have 30000 writers like you will have 30000 yeah, factory workers yeah. as long as there are in this world you know i don't know how many what is the world population uh 8 billion just yeah, 8 billion yeah so as long as there are i don't know 1 million writers in the world the world is safe literature is not about quantity there are so many people who write and as a literature teacher believe me it's a curse that some there are so many high school students who keep sending you their work which yeah, is so poems. bad yes which is so bad and some people will write a lot every day but it's not about prolific writing it's about it's about boom writing yeah and I that's going to happen probably harperly just wrote one book hmm. to kill a mockingbird yeah. right Do you another one after that? Yes. Go side of Watchmen. <laughs> yes, it was very disturbing. So yeah, so so it's about quality and people who want to study literature will study literature. The problems are in the compulsory classes. <laughs> yeah. Uh so how do you see the modern things that are being written these days? So modern poetry as someone myself who's been taught like, you know, Shakespeare and Keats and Shelley in class and even at home I've been read you know iqbal and ghalib and then if i open the new yorker and i find this absurd poem where you know things are going all over the place and i can't make any connection as to what is even happening what is happening in modern poetry modern poetry is representing the st- you're talking about structure and form yeah, right structure and form. the 
like anything else, structure and form will evolve and represent the world, the changing world. And modern poetry is a really, really stark representation of the chaos around us. The world, aren't you not noticing how disorderly our world is becoming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's breaking why, down. Everything's, that is why the structure and form of modern poetry is so apocalyptic. Because it is breaking down. And that is that is being shown. And poetry ought to represent what's happening in the world. It doesn't ought to, but I'm sure it's influencing the poet's mind. Mm. No, the greatest shift that happened in the structure and form and themes of poetry writing was after the First World War. Yes, of course. Everything changed. Faith was replaced by doubt and trust was replaced by mistrust, large-scale human misery and hunger and famine and unemployment and hate and rage. All these things, they suddenly became primary themes. What were we writing? Look at the right. Look at the themes of poetry before the First World War. It was all love and nature. So, does art reflect the time that it's living in? Art, oh, that's that is a pretty hefty debate. That whether art is there should art be written for life's sake or should art be written for art's sake, art's sake yeah. that's that's a that's an issue and uh, that's that's a really interesting debate so um, art will inadvertently unintentionally unconsciously reflect life mm-hmm. and if you if you are if you are a writer if you are a poet you will inevitably be inspired or affected or repulsed by something that you have watched or seen or heard and you'll write about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, Miss, we're sort of nearing the end of our discussion segment. But the last question that I wanted to talk to you about was your meeting with Margaret Atwood. Could you tell us about that? Okay. So, that was a... It wasn't a meeting, really. It was just that because I follow her on Twitter, and this is a long time ago, much before COVID actually and a friend of mine we were in London and uh, we have been following her and we were preparing to teach this uh, Handmaid's Tale which Mm. was on the uh, Cambridge syllabus that was her first work that came onto the Cambridge syllabus so she tweeted that how you know proud she is and everything so I replied and uh, just just like that uh, mm, I realized that both of us were in London at that point. Oh. Okay, and uh, she said that she's coming to a talk. It was, I think, in Covent Garden. Okay. And uh, we just uh, when she when she said that uh, I'll be there at that p.m. and how could you not take that opportunity and yeah, dropped so everything <laughs> and followed we, her. Yeah, reached there. <laughs> And uh, we had a, I mean, we just had a really great conversation over drinks and it was just lovely. Um, She talked about uh, this story that she was writing. She was writing that story at that point, the one that we are reading. And uh, she talked about it that how, how, how the more and more she looks at women around her, especially older women, and you know, like Germaine Greer, 
Margaret Atwood is really interested in the aging woman. Mm. And uh, she, she realized that so many women have dormant, suppressed paranoia. And yeah. uh, we discussed that. And I have shared my notes with you. The notes that I took. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Miss, so uh, now we're just going to move on to these quick questions. So I'm going to ask you a short question and you can give us oh, an answer. Oh, my God. Is that it's all one word. It's not like... You're not it's on, not that... Thing no, that no. they do on cheesy <laughs> shows. No, no. That's the KGS podcast is not the Jimmy Fallon, late type of Jimmy Fallon. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So what is your favorite part of the day? Oh, my favorite part of the day is being in a literature classroom. Of course. Uh, greatest challenge while teaching? Greatest challenge while teaching is... Uh, uh, is... To keep the teacher mode. <laughs> that's funny what would you be if you would be something else what would I be like as a profession as a profession yeah oh I was thinking like a tree or a <laughs> okay like you a could profession. take it that way as well oh a want. profession hmm I think I'll be an artist an artist do you paint I do oh that's nice maybe you should see your art sometime uh, what is your favorite text from the syllabi that you teach or have taught in the past okay so you, the thing is that uh, the literature syllabus changes every third year I see. so we are always on our toes yeah okay uh, if you're talking about in the recent years like this this let's talk about this yeah, yeah year. this one like I have eight eight texts right so I'd say um, a very close call between Emily Dickinson and Tennessee Williams Tennessee Williams of course um which character from literature has inspired you the most? Uh, okay, there are two characters. There is Hamlet. Hmm, of course. And there is Blanche Dubois, which is from A Streetcar Named Desire hmm. uh, by Tennessee Williams. Both these characters, they, uh, they really, really, um, they really suffer with real, I mean, they really struggle with reality, and I yeah. feel that I really relate to that because I'm a, you know, I'm a very abstract person. Like my mo- most of my responses to things will be, hmm, okay, hmm, I'll think about it. Yeah, that's amazing, though. You know, it's that you can just detach yourself from what's happening and go to this other plane of thought where everything is better. Yeah. And I feel that both Hamlet and Blanche, they really struggle. They don't. They don't see the world as it exists on the plane of reality they yeah. see the world as it exists inside their mind or as they want it to exist yeah that's amazing uh what's your what's an unforgettable classroom moment that you can share with us an unforgettable classroom moment i have had many i must say that i'm very privileged to to teach very very intelligent minds and I think I have learned so much from my students so instead of uh, thinking instead of identifying one I'll say that a most transformative moment for me occurs in the classroom when a student asks me a question I cannot answer Mm. 
that really blows my mind and I think that is what I am so grateful for that that's when a student gives me an opportunity to learn, to learn. because you know when you've been teaching for like 27 years you kind of you are at the risk of complacency and I don't want to be that person I'm a very avid learner so yeah, yeah. And I guess have, teaching literature, there's never one answer, right? You, you, if someone asks you a question, your mind will obviously go to all the possible answers rather than just knowing a couple of answers. But teaching literature also means that there are no answers also. Sometimes. Yeah, there are no answers. Mm. So lastly, who is your favorite poet? That is, that <laughs> is such... I don't know if I... Okay, so I have favorite poets which are all exact same level of okay, favorite yeah. but they are 100 poets. Okay, we can have a few of them. Alright, we can have a few of them. Hmm, Sylvia Plath. Okay. Uh, also her husband. Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes. Also some very, very lesser known modern contemporary poets. Uh, there is, of course... Uh, Lady Mary Oliver, Mary who Oliver. just died. I find simplicity so appealing in her writing. Um, also, of course, there are the second generation romantics. Yeah. I just can I just love them so much. Shelley for his for his really uh, angry, rebellious voice, and for Keats for his calm and his repose, and Derek Walcott. And uh, also, I mean, the American poets, Walt Whitman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Wallace Stevens, and uh, I got so many of them. Of course, there's uh, uh, Emily Dickinson, who I, whom I absolutely adore. And uh, many, many, Musa, this is a question I... I'm so sorry for setting you off, but... I can see your passion for poetry here. So I think we're going to reach the end of our discussion. Miss I thank you so much for giving us this time for setting off our podcast. This will be our first episode, which we'll post soon. Mm-hmm. And I hope this can be a series that continues. And maybe we could have another discussion with you, a part Indeed, two. Maybe. I really want to have a, sec- a second discussion with you. Maybe I'll ask you the questions next time. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go for that. But thank you so much for listening. And we hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you so This is the first episode of the KGS podcast, an offshoot of the stories of KGS program by the Daily.